Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a part of the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and today we'll be talking to Jeremy Surrey, who is the Mac Brown Distinguished Professor for Global Leadership, History, and Public Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Jeremy also was my graduate advisor, um, so I'm excited to have him here, and he'll be speaking about his new book, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me on. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book, and I'm excited to talk about it today. And we often start by talking a little bit about how our guests got interested in history and in their book topics specifically. And for you, you've been on this podcast before with some of your previous books, and I thought we would start by talking about how you came to this topic. Your early work is more focused on foreign policy, a little more focused on the 20th century, and this book takes your readers to the era after the Civil War, to Reconstruction, and the few decades even after Reconstruction. What got you interested in writing a history book about that time period, about the late 19th century? It's a great question. And I think seven, eight years ago, I would not have predicted that I would write this book uh, for many reasons. Uh, what drove me in this direction uh, was the the experience of the last six, seven years in our democracy. Uh, every one of my previous books at its core had the question about how power could be used to promote democracy, whether abroad or at home, whether we were talking about 60s activists in the United States, who you've also written uh, wonderfully about, uh, or whether we were talking about Henry Kissinger and the controversy around Kissinger's foreign policies or nation building, or even the presidency itself. Uh, each book presumed that the purpose of American power was to promote democracy and the debates in different eras, which I studied and found fascinating were debates over how to do that. But the last six to seven years led me to question whether we as a society are really as committed to democracy as we've claimed, and whether our institutions are as firmly situated in a democratic dialogue and a democratic mode as we had assumed. And so I, I had this kind of crisis of democratic identity myself. I think many of our listeners have gone through this in one form or another. Uh, Donald Trump is certainly part of this shock to uh, what we consider democratic expectations in our society. And I spent time trying to figure out, as any historian does, what are the roots of this moment and what had I overlooked? And this period, uh, the 20 years after the Civil War, appeared more and more to me in my research and in my teaching as a period that resonates with the world we're in today. So in part, I'm doing in this book, what I think we all do as historians is find historical moments in the past that we think resonate, not because they're identical, but resonate because of certain parallels with our own time. And and this book was an exploration of that, a way for me to try to figure out, and hopefully it helps readers to figure out where some of the, the horrors we've seen in the last six, seven years, where they came from. Okay. 
And so you're arguing that the the Civil War continued by other means after 1865, following along with what you were just talking about. In many ways, I'm sure any any listener would be aware and think of the Civil War as a moment when democracy was tested and challenged and and at a breaking point uh, to the closest sort and most complete breaking point that we perhaps have had or most obvious breaking point we've had. But you're actually picking up in 1865 and saying it continues after that. So what were some of the the battlefields or some of the means by which the Civil War was continued after the formal part of the war was over, the military part of the war was right. over? Right. It's a great question, Christine. And I think it's an important conceptual point where we as historians, um, just conceptually, add to the way we think about politics in our contemporary world, there's a tendency to assume that eras and periods and experiences end when there's a treaty or when there's something marking the end, the end of the Cold War. How many times have you heard people say something like that? And of course, uh, the agreement at Appomattox in April of 1865 does bring an end to the battles as they were fought during that part of the Civil War. But as historians, we know that wars don't end when the battles themselves end on the traditional battlefields. Uh, the divisions, the sources of anger, the sources of conflict, they carry on in different in different ways. And there are at least three ways in which that happens after Appomattox that I try to focus on in the book. One is the struggle to uh, exclude certain people from our democracy. Uh, the debate that begins then and continues to this day is should we have a wide democracy with full participation for more and more people? Uh, even the advocates of that in 1866, we should say we're not really advocating for everyone to participate, but at least for more, a wider democracy, a bigger democracy, or do we want a narrower democracy uh, where a smaller group of people who by merit or by race or by uh, inheritance have more power. Uh, that became more of an issue after the end of slavery, after the end of the Civil War than before, because you didn't have the institutional exclusion of 4 million African Americans, many of whom, as I point out in the book, were now in positions of power very quickly because they were in the Union Army. And one of the things that motivated John Wilkes Booth to kill Lincoln was witnessing African American soldiers uh, protecting or guarding prisoners of war who were white Confederates. And that reversal of power uh, was what shocked him. And, and let's be clear, it shocked many, many people. You didn't have to be crazy to be shocked by that. So, so that debate about who's included is a debate that's unresolved that really becomes more of a debate after the Civil War and continues uh, to this day. Second uh, element of this is paramilitary violence. Uh, and this is the way in which the end of our Civil War in its traditional sense is actually like those in other societies. Uh, the violence doesn't go away overnight. It usually, for other societies, as for our own, goes from more traditional, organized, state-centered to non-state-centered violence. And Christine, your work on the 60s is about exactly this, um, the presence of violence in our society. It's so still shocking to me, Christine, that so many Americans think our society is a non-violent society. Uh, au contraire. Uh, and and uh, gun ownership is at a historic high now, but it's not unusual uh, for groups of Americans to have weapons, to hold weapons, and to use those weapons, not really to protect themselves, but to assert power. Uh, and, and that picks up 
of course, after Appomattox. And then the third uh, element uh, is, I think, our political divisions, our partisan divisions. Uh, they have flipped. This is what always fascinates uh, undergraduates, right? That uh, the Republicans are the party of inclusion, uh, or they seem to be at least in eight, late 1860s. And the Democrats are, of course, the party of the Confederacy. And it's, it looks a little different today. Uh, but these divisions, this partisanship, uh, I, I don't think what we see today is any more partisan than the period after Appomattox. And so these you're talking here and, and have told us a little bit about both some of the ways that uh, the Civil War is continuing and some of the issues here. And I was wondering if we could dive in a little bit more about what this is, the continued war is really over. Or to put it differently, you mentioned, for example, the meaning of America in some places. You've also talked about power. You've talked a little bit about questions of democracy when you talked about what brought you to this book. These are all kind of big concepts that can be hard to grasp in some ways. What do you see as kind of the important question of of what people are really fighting over? Are they fighting over identity? Are they fighting over... The meaning of America is again pulling that quote out. What what is the issue right. there? It's a very good question, um, and it took me a while to come to a conclusion on that. I think fundamentally they're fighting over control, control over their lives and their communities, and I think what leads many uh, who remain uh, favorable toward the Confederacy and those, and this includes people in the North, is is a desire to control their communities and keep certain people out, whether that includes African-Americans, uh, immigrants, women. It's about control of their communities. It's not about economics per se. Obviously, economics matters. But of course, in the 1870s, as we see today, many people will choose control over economic improvement in their lives. And this is always what is hard for progressives to understand. When you offer a community that by giving up a little bit of power, you'll have better education and better social services and better health care. Uh, that doesn't always motivate them because as I think Richard Hofstadter more than two generations ago pointed out to us, status is about control. It's not necessarily about the quality of your life. And so what I see after uh, Appomattox is really a, a new continuation of the Civil War, now less over slavery but over control of post-slave society. Okay. And so I want to have listeners get a little bit of an idea about some of the fields on which they they fight that war of control, so to speak. Um, And you have many of them in your book, and we don't need to necessarily go through all of them. Um, But I thought I would let you pick, there's a few, few that stand out to me, but you pick one of your favorite uh, to talk about or one that you think is particularly important. And I'm thinking here about uh, how there are battles over voting or battles over um, the meaning of Lincoln's death, things of that nature. What kind of stood out to you or what were some of the stories that you particularly found surprising as you were doing this research? Uh, It's a really thoughtful question. Um, so first, I, I'll say that I, I was struck by uh, the amount of violence that continues after the war. 
And I talk in the book about uh, Memphis, for example, just a year after Appomattox, uh, where uh, it's not only there's a riot, it's it's an organized effort by the local police, sheriffs, citizens to uh, not only take away power from an African-American community, but to physically assault that community, to destroy that community and to create a precedent so that they'll never be challenged again, white, white white powerful groups in that area. Uh, so those are the direct battlefields. Uh, but but I think what I would point to most of all as, as perhaps most interesting and maybe most relevant uh, for us today are the ways in which uh, our political space became a battle over this um, and a battle not in the sense of um, who's the best candidate to bring consensus, more how can I weaponize politics to produce the outcome that I want. Uh, and that's less about the candidates. It's more about, in the end, the party and what the party stands for. So there's no doubt that Democrats uh, use their ability to get back into government, particularly when Andrew Johnson pardoned a lot of them, to try to sabotage uh, state constitutions that had empowered African Americans and others, and to use Congress when they could to undermine efforts by the federal government to enforce the law. And the most specific example of this being during Ulysses Grant's presidency, when Grant creates the Justice Department as we know it today, and the Justice Department was created uh, to enforce the law, including constitutional amendments in the South, and Democrats, as well as some Republicans, acted to undermine the Justice Department uh, because they believed it was their role to use their power in Congress uh, to undermine the enforcement of the law to serve the political aims of their constituents. Uh, I, I hadn't thought of it that way before. My presumption was people were elected to office and they might differ over how to enforce the law, but it was over the enforcement of the law. Uh, this is just the opposite of that. And it's a weaponization, therefore, of the law to serve political purposes, not marrying your political purposes to the law. And, and, and so as I talk about in the book, the argument over the debate over impeachment, which resonates so much with us today, uh, is the same thing. And in the end, uh, Johnson is not convicted. He's impeached but not convicted uh, because there are too many interests in um, not enforcing the law, even though he is not enforcing the law himself. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I think in some ways will be surprising to a lot of people in part because we, or at least these, those of us who follow politics closely or who study history are probably familiar with at least in a recent context. And I mean, recent in uh, historian terms. So even the last 50 years context of the idea that people might, as you put it, weaponize politics or find different ways to maneuver and use the political rules to their benefit to get to their um, preferred policy outcome or whatever outcome it is. But we often look at that as sort of a moment of disillusionment, or we think of that as politics today or something like that. And you're really talking about this being a much longer history of of this type of thing. And I wonder if as you study that, what do we do with that? Does that give us more disillusionment to say this is inbuilt to the system. This is the way that it has always been. Does it tell us something about how we we think about our just we think about history differently? Or does it give us some better understanding of the present? What, what do we do with this information that this is a much longer running trend? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, because one of the big takeaways, one of the big lessons for me 
in this project, and let's be honest, uh, when you write a book, you learn so much. Uh, that's why it's fun to write books for all of you out there. I hope you all read books, but also write books. Um, to me, one of the big takeaways is we have to do a better job of enforcing the law. And, and that's not law and order politics. Let's make that distinction. And again, Christine, this connects to your, your research and your writing. Those who argue for law and order in the way that American presidents have since Lyndon Johnson, it's Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon who first create that rhetoric in a certain way, they're not actually arguing for the law. law. They're arguing for um, attacking certain groups, undermining certain groups that are seen as threatening. The, the law and order is a – it stands in – I think the scholarship is very clear for this – for saying there are bad people out there and we need to take action against those bad people and for Johnson and for Nixon – it's urban African-American males who are seen as causing all sorts of things uh, to happen that they don't want to see happen. Uh, that's not really enforcing the law. Enforcing the law is making sure that we have rules of the game that are applied equally to everyone, and those rules are used to uh, maintain the system, not to undermine the system. And there's too little enforcement of the law on those who claim to be about law and order in the 1870s, just as there is today. Let me give a very concrete example, uh, and it will resonate with today. Uh, individuals like uh, South Carolina politician Ben Tillman, who I talk about in the book, and other historians have written about him too, of course, uh, he claims he's enforcing law and order when he denies fraudulent black people the ability to vote. And he makes a law and order claim and the red shirts and others, these groups of KKK-like uh, vigilantes and paramilitary activists, they claim they're enforcing law and order, but they're very clearly violating uh, the 15th Amendment as well as various other laws. And that's clearly stated by the Justice Department, but they are not held accountable and often not prevented from doing what they're doing. So they're making a law and order claim, but they're breaking the law. And the tragedy of the 1860s, 70s, and 80s is that the law is not enforced in too many parts of the country, not just in the South, and that bad actors get away with it. And not only do they empower themselves, but they also uh, bully, uh, cower, undermine the opportunities for others who might challenge them for, for decades uh, there, thereafter. So I think the takeaway here is that in this space where law is being weaponized by people like Ben Tillman, being weaponized in Congress and elsewhere by Democrats at that time, uh, we can't allow that. The law has to be equally and fairly enforced. That's the opposite of weaponizing the law. So in today's terms, that means you don't get to frivolously create lawsuits to prevent yourself from being um, prosecuted for stealing government documents. Uh, if, if I steal government documents, if I happen to be in a meeting, once in a while I'm in a meeting at the State Department or something, and I take government documents with me home that are classified, police will come and put me in jail. And that's one of the reasons I don't do that. Um, you don't get to say, oh, well, I have all, this, all these other legal reasons why you shouldn't prosecute me for doing that, and I'm going to sue and do all this other stuff. That is weaponizing the law. That's precisely what is done after Appomattox by various groups that take similar measures to escape from conviction for bullying and attacking those who want to vote and bullying and attacking those who want participation uh, in our system. So real, equitable legal enforcement is what we need in our society. And so 
in this moment, there of course sometimes are areas where reasonable minds and reasonable people who are not um, necessarily trying to weaponize might disagree, especially when we're talking about the Constitution. There are perhaps areas where there could be multiple interpretations that have some level of validity. Do you see in your research here and in your book examples of more productive ways for dealing with some of those disagreements? Or do we have to look to another period to find those? I I think there were productive moments. uh, And I think there was uh, progress that that was made. Um, Ulysses Grant was, early on in his presidency, able to... um, through the Justice Department, enforce the law in certain areas and limit the power of the Ku Klux Klan yeah, in its first iteration in, in different areas. I think there was a very productive compromise on creating voting rights. Not enough at the time. Uh, I think, and it's a criticism I make in the book, there should have been a constitutional amendment protecting everyone's right to vote, not just saying that you cannot deny voting based on race, because that means you can still deny it based on many other things, as states like my own Texas do all the time. Uh, So there was more that could have been done, but the 15th Amendment was actually still a, a, a step forward. Uh, It was a compromise step forward. The problem is that it was really the end until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Um, But the Constitutional Amendment process, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, uh, the Enforcement Acts, uh, there were many elements of Northern Republicans and Republicans from middle states and elsewhere working together to find mechanisms to provide some protection for newly empowered uh, former slaves and their supporters and others, while at the same time trying to protect some of the basic interests of other citizens in society and giving them a reason to believe that they would not be harmed by these changes as well. So I think the system can work. I think there are examples of this from the period, but what is, uh, I think, an important lesson is that those who don't want compromise, those who want to uh, disrupt that process, our democratic system gives them lots of opportunities for that. Mm-hmm. Well, and your point about the 15th Amendment really highlights, especially when you're talking about the law, the extent to which uh, precision of wording makes a difference. And there are very particular um meanings that come out of the choice to have the 15th Amendment be about not restricting in a particular way as opposed to a more affirmative right for everyone to vote, as you point out. Precisely, precisely. So I want to pick up on this one a little bit uh, and circle back to the other example you mentioned, which is the violence, and talk about what happens after the 15th Amendment. Um, and I, I noted a quote from your book where you note that the months around uh, the ratification of the 15th Amendment were the most violent in the South since Appomattox. And the example you mentioned was earlier than that. There was certainly plenty of other violence continuing after the Civil War. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why. Maybe some of that is intuitive, but talk a little bit about why the passage of the the ratification of the 15th Amendment leads to this new uptick and this particular explosion of conflict. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's first of all important to remember that uh, each of these amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, 13th, of course, ends slavery. 14th creates uh, natural born citizenship and uh, equal protection under the law, which of course is not really realized until the 1960s. And then uh, the 15th Amendment to prohibit uh, racial exclusions on voting. Uh, all of these amendments are forced upon the Southern states. Uh, they are not bipartisan. I, I just want to make that point. It's important for us as historians. People will say, well, the only way you change the Constitution is getting bipartisan support. And, and in general, I like that argument, but it's just not historically correct. Um, there's not a single Democratic vote in Congress for any of these amendments. And the states of the former Confederacy that take them on, take them on because they are given that as a non-negotiable condition for coming back into the union, which they want to do because they want the aid from the union. So uh, these are Republican Party imposed amendments on the country. And that's part of the explanation to your excellent question, Christine. Uh, Many, uh, not just Southerners, but many Southerners, many former Confederates see this as Yankee imperialism. That's what they're still calling it. Uh, this is it is imposed on them and they don't like it. Why do they not like it? It's not just because they're racist. I think that's that's, of course, true. Uh, but it's because of power and control, as as we said before. It's why that other question of yours was, was spot on. Um, there, there are many communities uh, where um, the former slave population is now a majority or near majority as a non-slave population. And that would mean that traditional white landholders, traditional white shop owners, tailors, others, um, they will lose control over their communities. And uh, they are dead set against that. And and in a certain way, you can't blame them. That's a human reaction. Uh, and, and I try to point out to students, and I try to point this out in the book, uh, as horrible as that is, and there's no reason to apologize for it at all but we do have to at least empathize, recognize that for them, the world has turned upside down. It has literally turned upside down. Those who they believed wrongly were subhuman are now all of a sudden in a position to rule over them or have majorities uh, in their areas. And what we treat today appropriately as a moment of triumph in the first years after the Civil War, when many African-Americans are elected to Congress, one is in the Senate, uh, many in state legislatures. That's a reversal of the world they knew. And so the opposition, in particular the violence, is is not just a strategy to keep certain people from voting. It is that. It's also an emotional outburst. It's a tantrum. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, um, the federal government is not prepared for that. It should have been. Uh, and, and that's part of the story of why the bad actors get away with it. Well, and I think, as you mentioned, students today, in some ways, there's a way in which today we, um, or or at least when I've taught students, occasionally some students have a, a level of disillusionment about the importance of voting and the power of voting. And it seems like in this moment, some of these folks are really, they are seeing it as powerful and as key to enacting that shift that you're talking about, that turning the world upside down for them. Absolutely. And I, I, I tried to chronicle this a bit in the book, and I'm certainly not the first to write about this, but the, the courage and determination to vote shown by many of these communities, and also the courage and determination by some white Republicans to support that. 
uh, in the South is very important. This this is not just a story of uh, resistance. It's also a story of a movement. It's a story of civil rights in a very different dimension from where we are today or where we were in the 1960s and 70s. But it's a story of an incredibly courageous brave, strong action by uh, individuals, you know, for instance, uh, you know, I, I talk about in, in, in the book, um, you know, the, the figures like John Adams, this African-American John Adams, who's a former slave, and others who uh, really uh, do what they can to, to get access to land, to get access to the ballot box. Uh, these are crucial, crucial things. Yeah, for sure. And our, we're having a conversation sort of on the perhaps 10,000 foot level in some ways, but your book, I, we should tell listeners, talks about lots of individual stories, a lot of people who both are doing heroic actions, uh, or who are really standing up for what they believe in, and lots of individuals who suffered really uh, stomach churning fates in this moment, especially when we're talking about how violence was used uh, against people. And, and and absolutely, Christine, and I think it's, it's so important in relationship to the point you made earlier, because uh, people today need to know that if you're disillusioned, it's okay to be disillusioned, but if you don't vote, uh, you are in a sense showing disrespect to that tradition. For those who have put so much in and risked so much to vote, uh, I always tell my students that you know to be someone who cares about democracy, you have to vote. I, I don't care who you vote for, and you can even go and vote none of the above, but it is an affirmation of your participation. And if you don't go, it, it's actually an affirmation of authoritarianism by saying you, you don't wish to participate and you wish to have others make decisions for you. Uh, and I hope this history contextualizes that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you mentioned several times, of course, that in this moment, it is still a moment when not everyone is being included as nonetheless in in this particular moment. Women are not a part of this story, um, or not, they're a part of the story, but they're not being brought into the ability to vote at the very, very least. Absolutely. And this is a point that many historians have made that uh, curiously, the argument for African American male suffrage becomes an excuse for uh, female exclusion. And that continues, of course, uh, in many parts of the country and certainly at the federal level until the 19th Amendment is finally passed in 1920. And even then, it's a long time until we see female participation. We still see fewer female uh, elected officials in particular roles uh, than you would expect considering education levels in our society now and considering participation rates. Women participate as voters more than men, but they're underrepresented in elected office. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it is important that you do talk about, particularly for Black women uh, in these moments, they are very much part of the story in the sense that they are um, experiencing the violence, they are experiencing these changes, and they are very much um, part of that continuing civil war, even while they're being excluded from the particular aspects of this political participation. I agree. That's that's absolutely right. They 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 are important actors, but restricted in their participation, or at least their political participation. Right. So I want to turn to talking a little bit about a, another field of battle, so to speak, and talking about presidential politics. And in particular, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Rutherford B. Hayes, um, partially because 
historians, of course, have have written about Reconstruction a lot, right? That's not a, a shocking statement to say. This isn't the first book to cover that period. But if we're talking about how historians periodize things, 1865 is often one moment of ending. We also often, and if one's teaching a survey course, for instance, you might have a big turning point at the quote unquote end of reconstruction. And so often Hayes becomes his election becomes the end of reconstruction. And then we move on to some other topics, but your book then spends some time actually talking about his presidency and then Garfield's after that. And so I was wondering if you could talk about his presidency and perhaps why you made the choice to include both of those two presidencies and then have your ending. Right, right. Good question. Uh, so um, traditionally, I think you're right. Uh, the 1876 election, uh, which gets a whole chapter in my book, is often seen as the end of Reconstruction because in that election, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, receives fewer popular votes than Samuel Tilden. Hayes was the governor of Ohio running as a Republican. Tilden was the Democrat from gov- Democratic governor of New York uh, running as a Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, Tilden gets more votes, uh, but uh, Hayes ekes out more electoral votes in three disputed states, uh, Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina. It's interesting how these states recur as important political battlegrounds, as we call them now. And as C. Van Woodward said a long time ago, uh, and it's still true, we still don't know who actually won the most electoral votes in those states because you had different sets of electors, and it's actually complicated. The votes were so close, and it's unclear which ballot should be disqualified because there are definitely people who voted twice and three times, but there are also some people who were prevented from voting. And so you had legitimate claims, unlike 2020, when you do not have these legitimate claims, you had legitimate claims of fraud and legitimate claims of um, voting prevention, voting suppression at, at a very high level. So it's hard to know. Uh, in order to get that through, in order to agree on Hayes becoming president uh, in 1876, early 1877, the Republicans promised the Democrats that they would withdraw the remaining Union forces from the South and provide um, aid to Southern whites. And so that's traditionally seen as the end of Reconstruction. I, I don't think that's the end of the story we're concerned with here if we're thinking about the seeds planted from the post-Civil War years that infect and undermine our democracy today. Because after that occurs, Rutherford B. Hayes still tries to, first of all, reconcile North and South. But second, he still believes the federal government should enforce the law. And he still has a civil rights agenda. He, he is a civil rights president and that he believes as a good union soldier from Ohio, he believes that Southerners should not get away with flaunting the law. And he's disgusted. This is clear in his diary. He's uh, a wonderful diary that's readily available and worth reading. He's disgusted by the behavior of vigilante groups and others, and he's disgusted by some of that even in the North uh, at this period as well. So his he, he's really trying to do something, and um, his failure um, is largely a failure, I think, of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party has decided that it wants to move on, not because of the agreement of 1876, but because of the opportunities, the economic opportunities in the West. And I think this is an important period to look at, those four years of Hayes' presidency, which almost no one spends any time on, um, because it's a classic case of how the losers win, how you can win a war and lose the peace, because the losers just keep resisting enough to make it too costly for the winners 
to actually continue doing. It's like that really, really annoying, bad behaving kid in the classroom in the back. And eventually you just stop trying to change that kid and you try to move on. But what I want to show is that moving on actually has huge, huge costs. And poor Rutherford B. Hayes, his presidency turns out to be a complete failure because he's unable to get his own party uh, to do anything. Southern Democrats are able to hold him hostage. Um, many of the acts that are passed during his presidency, most famously the Posse Comitatus Act, uh, are actually acts he has to sign on to after resisting them in order to get a basic budget approved for the military and other things. Posse Comitatus actually prevents the federal government from using military force to enforce the law in our, in our country. Um, and so it's a period of continued resistance and a period when the Republican Party is, becomes interested in other issues. And, and you see that through the prism of Hayes' presidency. Um, and it, it also reminds us, Christine, that, that, that presidents don't control these things. It reminds us how important Congress is. Yeah, for sure. It, it reminds us that battles over appropriations were, were key and have also been key for a long time as well there. Absolutely. Absolutely right. The, the other reason I, I, I go from Lincoln to Garfield is um, these are the first two assassinations of presidents in American history. One of the reasons Lincoln was so susceptible to being assassinated after fighting a war was uh, it was just unthinkable to him. He couldn't take seriously the idea that someone would actually try to kill a president. And then Garfield is assassinated in 1881. And, and I think those two assassinations after you know 80 years of, of violence not occurring in that way shows us how much more violent our politics had become. Uh, and, and shows us, unfortunately, that that violence has real effects because after each of those assassinations, and this is the point I really try to make in the Garfield chapter, after each of those assassinations, you have new presidents who were vice presidents who are singularly unqualified and have completely different agendas. Andrew Johnson, and most people know that story about Andrew Johnson, who becomes virtual dictator for eight months because he has war powers that Lincoln had and Congress doesn't sit again until December. So from April to December of 1865, he's in power. But Chester Arthur, who is only on the ticket as a way of appeasing the New York wing of the Republican Party, uh, Arthur was uh, not qualified in any sense, was not part, part of the administration, really, uh, and is sick himself. Um, you have in both of those periods, in critical moments, you have people in the executive office who are simply not doing the job. And uh, that empowers the bad actors as well. And, and I argue in the book that's a problem of succession in our system. In each of these cases, the elected president is killed within months of election. And you have someone who's not elected serving for more than three years. Uh, that's a real problem. Yeah. And uh, we sort of skip through the Lincoln assassination um chapter of your book as we've been talking, uh, but I think readers will find that section and just how incredibly different the kind of thinking about the president and certainly thinking about things like security, uh, but just that image of the president and how he fit in within the context of the 19th century versus how we're thinking about presidents today. It, it's just so incredibly different. It's in some ways difficult to imagine. Yes, um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And the, the vice presidential 
issue that you mentioned, as you have said here, it's one of your um, takeaways, legacies of thinking about the lessons of this book for today. Uh, but the the vice presidency has changed significantly as well. That role has changed, whether it's leads to perfection on succession is, or succession is a different question, but it certainly is a very different kind of position in this moment or within the context of your book than we think of it today. And maybe you could expand just a little bit more on that. You mentioned that these two were unqualified, but they're also just uh, kind of day to day, they they occupy a different position while the president was still alive. Right. So um, it really, what John Nance Garner, uh, who uh, was a member of Congress from Uvalde, actually, in Texas, uh, and uh, Speaker of the House, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt's first vice president for the first eight years of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, what he famously said was true until his time as vice president and a little bit thereafter, which was that the office wasn't worth anything but a warm bucket of something. And um, vice presidents were adornments at best, <laughs> At best, uh, they were generally chosen in smoke-filled rooms uh, to appease parts of the party to get the person at the top of the ticket elected. That's entirely what they were about. Lincoln thought about it that way. Andrew Johnson was put on the ticket in 1864 for one simple reason. Uh, He was the only Southern senator who did not leave uh, and secede. He was the only Southern Democrat who stayed in the Senate after uh, the start of the Civil War. And this was a sign of unity. Lincoln was trying to show that he could have this Tennessee senator on the ticket. Uh, He never had any desire or inclination to consult Johnson, to inform him. This was just an electoral strategy. And that is exactly how Franklin Roosevelt, uh, 60, 70 years later, thought about John Nance Garner. The vice president was an electoral adornment uh, at best. John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy thought of Lyndon Johnson this way. Lyndon Johnson didn't think of Lyndon Johnson this way, but they thought of him uh, this way. Um, And so the the problem is that um, the vice president often uh, from Lincoln's time forward has had to step in and become president. And when you have someone who not only really wasn't elected, but also doesn't have legitimacy or preparation, it's very difficult for that to occur. That was not a problem before Lincoln because – Presidents were not assassinated and generally didn't die in office, but it becomes frequent from Lincoln's time forward. So you have Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley all within the span of about 35 years. So one a decade assassinated. Interestingly, Lincoln's son is at all three of them. Uh, So you don't want him near you if you're president, by the way. Uh, He's not responsible for them. Um, But these uh, quick transfers of power, um, they create a lot of disruption and here's why I think this particularly matters now. Um, we could have a 80-plus-year-old president running for re-election. And that means that even in a secure environment, and who knows if this is a secure environment, we could have a vice president who has to take over very quickly. And even if that person is intimately involved with the administration, is that really how we want things to work? Is that really how a democracy should work? The larger point of my book is that the Civil War plants all kinds of anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic practices within our system that we've accepted for far too long. And the notion that someone could be elected president and then die within months and someone who was not elected president serve in this incredibly powerful role for more than three years uh, when they weren't elected 
Uh, that's a real problem. It's not the only problem in our democracy, but it is a major one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes a nice transition to talk a little bit more about uh, the legacies questions and the points you make. And um, I wanted to start with perhaps a um, just open question, which is to say, who who should read this book? Who Who's this book for? Everyone should read <laughs> I thought you might say that. Uh, obviously, obviously, my historian colleagues, I hope, will read the book. But but really, I, I don't write primarily for them, uh, though I care deeply about their scholarship and want them to read. Uh, and my graduate students do. But I, as you know, Christine, I can impose it on my graduate <laughs> students and undergrads. Uh, I, I think citizens who care about politics, I, I write for those who not necessarily are policy wonks, but those who are politically engaged, those who care about politics, because I think uh, too much of our discussion of politics is historically vacuous. Uh, Just three points that I hear people make all the time on all sides of the aisle. And it's not that it's our role as historians to be myth busters. I mean, that's how you don't get invited to cocktail parties, right? No (laughs) one wants to be told everything they've thought is wrong. But I do want people to have a deeper reservoir of knowledge about the issues they care about when they're talking about them. So three quick things, right? I mean, people assume that the Supreme Court has always had just nine justices, and they've always had the jurisdiction they've had, and they've always operated the way they do now. We're just fighting over which ones, conservatives or liberals, get to do that. It's not true. As I show in the book, the court changed its number. Its jurisdiction was changed by Congress. Uh, Those who read the book will see that. We need to know that that's a possibility. That's legitimate. That doesn't mean we should do it now, but the court did not always look the way it did. Second point, um, this point about political violence. Political violence is not new to our society. It manifests itself in new ways today. Uh, But if we're really going to combat that and talk about it, we can't just act as if we have this nonviolent history. And then all of a sudden, something violent happened seven, eight years ago, right? All of a sudden, uh, no, they're deeper, deeper issues. Uh, and, And that's what my book's about. Hopefully that informs our politics today. And then, uh, third, um, Our system has a long history of making it hard for people to vote and participate. And you can't deny that today, and you can't deny that that has deep roots, that it's as American as apple pie. And so if we're going to address that issue, everyone claims they want more people to participate. It's not enough to just argue over one voting law or another. It's can we fundamentally reform the system? This is why I argue in the book. Every person who believes in democracy should believe in a constitutional amendment for the right to vote. We have more protection for speech than voting in our society. That makes no sense. We're so out of touch with other democracies. We are the biggest or one of the biggest, and we think we're the best democracy in the world, and we have the least democratic of most democracies in terms of voting protection and elections. And and and, and that's a historical point. It's not an anti-Republican or anti-democratic point. And I think that history should be informing our discussions of these things today. So people who are interested in those issues, who I hope are a lot of people, the book is written to inform them, not to tell them what to do, Christine, but to provide some informational background so people can, I hope, have more uh, valuable, rich, and worthwhile conversations about these issues. Right. Well, and so you end with, um, I think it's uh, five legacies or, or uh, things that perhaps need to be done uh, in your your takeaways, lessons. And the last one that you mention is, as you describe it, hearts and minds, which I think goes right along with what you're talking about here, is that uh, it would be 
good if more people understood history and thought about history and thought and learned this sort of history. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about this, um, because though you make a joke about cocktail parties, as you say, nobody nobody likes, or at least lots of people don't like the uh, Mythbuster historian. And a lot of people also don't like the historian who comes through with a not just the well, actually, but with what can sometimes be perceived as a, a negative view of things or can sometimes be perceived as um, an unpatriotic view. I'm not saying that I sign on to that view, but often that seems to be the portrayal. Sure. So how do we or how do you think about getting more people to think about this kind of history in a different way? It's a great question and it's very relevant at a time when we have, you know, state legislatures trying to ban the teaching of certain kinds of history, to ban books. And as you know, as well as anyone, uh, Christine, the, this, this is an old story. We go through these cycles. Uh, we're a country that has always supported a free speech and always had people who were trying to censor free speech at the same time, right? And although it's shocking that certain people would say, like, Toni Morrison should be banned, I mean, come on, uh, that's not unusual in our history that these arguments uh, have occurred. Um, I think we have a long record that shows very clearly that efforts to ban the teaching of history or to distort the teaching of history uh, are counterproductive. They don't work. Uh, what is the most patriotic claim one can make, I believe, is that you love your country, as I love the United States, I'm the child of immigrants, I love my country, that you love your country so much that you want it to live up to its ideals and that you want to hold it accountable. This is also what we do as parents, right? Uh, because we love our children, it doesn't mean we say, certainly not in my house, that a C is acceptable work. In fact, an A minus is kind of a C in our house, right? Uh, you don't accept that, right? You hold your uh, your the people you love the most to the highest standards possible. And that's what we're doing. Um, so I'm against the teaching of history in a way that's designed to pile on to one atrocity after another. That's also boring. I'm also opposed to the kind of history that's to pile on one world record and one, yes, great again, great again, right? That's also boring, by the way. What is not boring, what is fascinating and valuable is to show how our country has, I think, time and again, as it did at Appomattox, as it did during the Civil War, as Lincoln did, has articulated high-minded ideals and how we've struggled to reach them. And in struggling to reach them, we can, first of all, honor those who have struggled. And we've talked about that on the podcast. We can call out those who have sold out their ideals. I have a whole chapter on these exiles, people who most people haven't heard of, uh, people like Alexander Terrell. He leaves Texas uh, with the Confederates who refuse to surrender, goes and fights for Emperor Maximilian in Mexico loses again, and then comes back to the United States and gets elected in Texas and claims he's a hero and writes the voting laws. This is ridiculous. This man is a traitor. The, the fighting for a foreign ar army, the Mexican army, is the definition of treachery, right? Um, and, and people like that need to be called out. That behavior needs to be condemned. Um, and at the same time, we have to show how the intersection between those who struggle and those who sell out, those who are traitors, how that history comes together to offer opportunities for us today. So the presence of lynching and violence that I cover in the book and that others have covered, it, it's not designed to trash America. 
It's designed to show us the perils of our democracy, things we need to be attentive to today, and the ways in which we can continue to do better. We can reform our system by learning about the mistakes we've made in the past. That's, that's the whole point. I don't think a democracy or any society thrives by simply highlighting the things it's done best, uh, just as parenting is not simply bragging on your kids. It's by saying you believe in your kids, you believe in your country, and then showing where it's gone wrong, where your kids have not done their best, and helping them to do better, helping our country to do better. I think that's what we're doing as historians by describing our struggles, our limitations, and our hopes to do better. That's, that's what my book's about. I, I think the Civil War has continued in other means um, because we haven't fully grappled with this history in the way the Germans have done a better job grappling with the history of the Holocaust. They did far worse things in the Holocaust. There's not an equivalent in the United States, uh, but we have some real um, atrocities and misgivings and shortcomings in our history that I cover and others have. And we need to recognize those, uh, deal with them, and then move forward building on the lessons from that period, getting those uh, bad experiences, those cancers that have been planted in our society, removing them so we can move forward. I think that's a, a great place to wrap up our discussion of the book. Um, and though, as you say there, there are many important and interesting stories that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about. The exiles are absolutely one. Um, you also talk uh, quite a bit about John Wilkes Booth in a chapter that I think many uh, listeners will find interesting. So I hope that they get the book and read it and learn all about those those individuals. Um, but before we go, uh, do you have a new project that you're working on? And what comes next? I'm not sure. Uh, um, That's I don't, I have a surprise. A lot of, I have a lot of ideas. I have a lot. I, I'm, I'm interested. It's funny. I've just been talking about the 19th century. And now I'm, I'm really interested in coming back to the late 20th century and the sort of fin de siècle moment we've, many of us have lived through. Uh, which is now history for my students, of course, of course. and and the ways in which uh, that's affected our world. Just as I think the Civil War uh, deeply affects the divisions in our society today, I also think the late 20th century deeply affects the ways in which our democracy has spiraled today. And so I'm thinking about that, but uh, I, I don't know yet. I'm, I'm still, I'm, right now, I'm, I'm focused on the, the period after the Civil War. That sounds good. Well, I look forward to uh, reading what you come up with next. And I hope that our listeners will look forward to and pick up this book and think a little bit about the late 19th century. Thank you, Christine.